If you heard someone refer to, uh, I don't know, a musician or an artist or maybe an actor or an actress or somebody who had done something amazing, and you heard them refer to that person and they said, that person's the goat. How many of you would know, just by raising of hands, would know what they're referring to by the word goat? All right, seven of you. Awesome. So those seven that raised your hand, let me put a question up on the screen. It's also found in the notes if you want to use this. What is the meaning of goat? So this is where you get to talk in church. What is the meaning of goat? Greatest of all time. And I heard somebody else shout out something too, which fits with my message. Yes, it's the greatest of all time. Uh, that's a phrase, a word that, you know, when we think about, we think of the animal. When I think of the word goat, being as a kid grew up on a farm originally, I do think of the animal. But the acronym does not apply to the animal. Many attribute the phrase greatest of all time to a former heavyweight boxing champ known as Muhammad Ali, who referred to himself as the greatest of all time. Uh, however, the acronym GOAT, the greatest of all time, actually we can go back and find where it kind of took life, where it began. And that was actually on September 12th, 2000. On September 12th, 2000, and I know the second service will have ran out and got this, because that's when American rapper LL Cool J uh, released an album entitled GOAT, G-O-A-T, Greatest of All Time. And what's interesting is a few later, years later, that acronym began to have some traction and, and take and have some more meaning, uh, and it can, began to be associated with sports stars. And today, uh, it is often associated, I think I heard somebody yell it out, Tom Brady. Um, and so uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I looked at for who's playing today in the NFL, and they're playing tonight, which made me think about several, I don't know, a month or two ago, uh, I was watching Sunday Night Football, and when they came back from commercial, and if you watch this, you know how this works, they had the camera panning in this corral with the half dozen or so of goats walking around. And I'm thinking, what are they doing? What is this about? Because they don't tell you. And then the camera pans back, and you see that phrase right there, the G-O-A-T in this corral, and kids walking around wearing their Tom Brady's jersey. And then, of course, Al Michael and Chris Collinsworth, the guys who call the game on Sunday night, go, well, is he? Is he the GOAT? And this discussion continues on. And since none of us here are probably going to catch Tom Brady in terms of uh, Super Bowls won and, and whatnot, you might be wondering, why have you entitled your message, Bill, How to Become the GOAT? How to Become the GOAT? How, how, do, how does that happen? How can I become the GOAT? And since this acronym is often associated with sports stars or musicians or artists or actors or actresses or even famous maybe leaders like Abraham Lincoln, why on earth have I entitled my message, How to Become the Goat? Uh, the reason is really simple. Uh, as we continue in our series, uh, this series known as Knowing the Truth About Jesus and the Gospel of Luke, a dispute about the goat comes up amongst the disciples. And you're thinking, really? Yeah, it goes way back then. Sorry, LL Cool J. It actually begins back in Bible times, right in front of Jesus, no less. This discussion, this dispute, these 12 men get into it with each other about which of them is the goat. 
If you got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we're going to be looking and, uh, and studying and walking through verses 23 to 30 today as we answer this question, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? I put the reference up on the screen for you, which means if you actually want to look at this, you're going to need to have a Bible or a flat screen or something to pull out to look at Luke 22, which is where we are today. Luke 22. So let's just quickly ask the question before we get into these verses here, what the setting is, what the context is. If you've been with us recently, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for a while, and last week we were in chapter 22, and we pick it up continually where we are. But I want you to look with your Bible open, look to uh, above verse 14 in your Bible. And if you can see that and read that, and your vocal cords are working, shout out what you see above verse 14. Oh, I'm corrected. Thanks. Verse 13. Whatever it is in your Bible, what do you see as the subtitle above it? Thank you, Tony. Jesus and the disciples have the Last Supper. It's the Last Supper. In other words, it's communion time. That's our setting. That's where we are. And Jesus told them in verse 15 that he was going to suffer. And in verses 19 and 20, he talked about offering his body and his blood as a new covenant. In other words, the cross that he's been referring to, that he's been looking to, is finally here. In other words, the moment of his arrest, the moment of his trial, the moment of him being beaten, the moment of him carrying the cross and being nailed to it, And as he's hanging on the cross, the moment of him being speared, the moment of his death is just moments away. That's the context. That's the setting. That's what it feels like in this room to realize that's what we've all come for. It's the Last Supper before he does and completes his mission on the cross. That's what this is set up to be. To kind of maybe help us with some perspective of, of kind of the solemnness or, or the, the honor that should be given in this moment. I was thinking about several years ago, right after 9-11. We have a lot of memories and thoughts to that, don't we? Uh, a couple weeks later or so, I was at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum for a college football game. And I remember right before the band played the Star Spangled Banner and we all sang, they asked for a moment of silence. And so here we are, 80-some thousand people, just like you are, completely quiet. So imagine in this moment of honor to those who had just lost their lives, two guys down in the corner start having an out loud discussion and debate about who's going to win the game and who the greatest players are and who should be, you know, the one who should start and who's going to catch the most passes. And you're trying to have this solemn moment to honor those who have lost their lives. That's kind of the context in my mind of what we've got here with the disciples. This moment where they should be focused on Jesus and this, well, what's about to happen, they turn it on themselves. And the Bible says that they get into a dispute, they get into a debate. So why does Jesus' disciples get into a dispute about Which of them is the goat? Why does this happen? 
Well, perhaps verses 21 and 22 tells us why. We're going to jump in there in 23 in just a moment. But look up above at verse 21 in Luke 22. Jesus has obviously had the supper with them, and he's distributed elements to them. And then he says this, But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. We can only imagine the tension that begins to rise at this moment. When of all the things that Jesus says, he says someone's going to betray him. The Bible gives no indication that they knew that it was Judas Iscariot. Jesus doesn't, from what we can tell in the accounts of the gospel, kind of point or look over at Judas so that they would understand, oh, it's him. Jesus doesn't do that. And it doesn't seem anywhere in the gospels that we have Judas making any indication that the other disciples could go, oh, it's him. So we don't have any idea what's going on here. And so like a narrator in a movie describing what you can't hear in the scene on the screen, Luke writes in verse 23, look there, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this, which of them it would be who would betray Jesus. After following him the past three years, after being handpicked, which of these guys is going to be the one to do this? And they have this discussion, and they have this questioning going on. Well, I don't imagine there were accusations made to another. I do imagine the idea, or at least I wonder, if the simple question was, if one looked at another and said, is it you? Is it you? And as they process this through in this discussion, uh, I also imagine the response going something like, are you serious? You cannot be serious and think that it's me. Like, how could you even ask such a dumb question? Is it me? <laughs> Is it me? And this discussion that goes on, and this, I just imagine this happening and the scene carries on. I imagine no longer they're reclining at the table, as Scripture says, but maybe at this point they sit up, right? And they maybe want to look a little bit more closely eye to eye to their brothers that they've been with. And since we can't make out the half dozen or so debates going on in this upper room, Luke writes this in verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be what? Greatest. Here we go with the goat. Who's the goat here, guys? The conversation begins to be about them. In other words, I'm not the betrayer here. Uh, it's not me. I, I'm well, well, um, well, I, we just want to be honest. I'm greater than you. <laughs> That's why it's not me. I'm not the betrayer. And I imagine this discussion perhaps goes on. I mean, imagine James and John looking and going, well, it's, it's not us. I mean, we came up a lucrative fishing business to go follow him. In fact, if you well, probably heard, maybe you didn't, but uh, we asked if we could actually sit at Jesus' left and right side. That's how great we think we are. Oh, and just in case we didn't get it in, mom came along and asked the same question of Jesus too. So it clearly can't be us, right? Matthew, I imagine him saying something like, well, I left a lucrative tax collecting business. It can't be me. Look at what I gave up. Or maybe John saying, well, <laughs> I'm the one Jesus loved, right? 
So it clearly can't be me, and this goes on. And then I just imagine at the very end, Peter's over there shaking his head going, you guys have lost it. I'm the only one who's walked on water. I got that on you. Definitely it's got to be me. I've got to be the goat here, right? I mean, just the reasoning of this says that after a dispute arose them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. What's the conversation like? I don't know. But I got to believe they're given reasons of why they're the greatest, therefore why they wouldn't be the betrayer. And so this discussion is unfolding here, and that's in the context that remind you of communion. The conversation interrupts in a moment of silence with 80,000 people there. It becomes about them at this moment. Again, that's the setting. And here's Jesus right in the middle of it listening to them have this discussion, hear their reasoning, hear their dispute, hear their debate. And so as we interact with this story this morning, there's two observations I want to give you. And and there's two questions I want to present to you. Two observations I want to offer you and two questions I want to ask. Here's the first observation. In teaching his disciples about greatness, notice what Jesus does not do. In other words, what I'm saying here is I want you to notice what's not in the text. I think this is interesting, and I think it's an observation we should have. After verse 24, Luke records what Jesus does not do. First of all, Jesus does not rebuke his disciples. Rather, he teaches them. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, you expect maybe a rebuke, but look at what he says. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. We're going to get into this here in just a few moments and explore the significance of what Jesus said here. But despite this moment of the disciples taking their focus off Jesus and putting it on themselves, just observe that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He's continually offering grace to his disciples in a moment of time in his life when he needs them to focus and pray and lift him up and be focused on what he's about to do for them. God is so gracious to us when we blow it and we're focused on ourselves or something that's not important. And God offers grace to us. That's what he's doing here. Just an observation. Here's secondly, in teaching the observation, notice also what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not condemn their desire to be great. He does not condemn their desire to be great. Rather, he encourages them. We're going to look at this in a moment, but whatever the arguments these disciples have about being the goat, one of the things that unfolds here is that Jesus doesn't single out one of the arguments and go, Peter did walk on water. Of course, I had to save you, but you got a good point to the rest of you who didn't have that kind of faith. That was great faith. No, he doesn't single that out. Jesus doesn't make one argument more valuable or less valuable than another. He encourages them. Because unbeknownst to them, unbeknownst to them from what they realize, they've created for themselves what we will often call a teachable moment. A teachable moment that they've created for themselves over and over and over and over again the past three years. And this takes us into our text here. In this observation, a second observation in teaching his disciples about greatness Notice the contrast Jesus makes here. 
First of all, he says that the world embraces authority. Look at verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. So instead of rebuking or condemning the disciples about being great, Jesus explains to them, he's going, guys, <laughs> you're thinking and acting like the Gentiles. You're thinking and acting like sinful men, like people that don't have a relationship with me. You're processing and looking at life differently than you should, not looking like you should as God's children. So an example of this idea of what Jesus is referring to here, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. The Romans in this time vied for places of honor, vied for places of prestige, and they would do this legally, and yes, you got it, they would also do this illegally to secure promotion and recognition. Because the more promotion, the more recognition, the greater you became in essence, well, that gave you greater authority. In fact, what unfolded for that is that Jesus says of this perceived level of greatness, these Romans are so caught up in themselves that they call themselves benefactors. What's a benefactor? A benefactor is simply one who bestows gifts on people, but he does it to gain their loyalty. He does it to gain their praise. In other words, his motive is self-serving. I'll do this for you because I want that in return. If I don't have that in return, then I'm not doing it. Make sense? So that's the motive behind the Romans here, the Gentiles, and what he's speaking of here. He's saying, you guys in your debate about the being the goat is really all about you. It's all about elevating yourself. You're taking the world's way of going about being great. Again, the observation here, he's not rebuking them about their discussion. He's not holding that against them. What he's after here is to help to teach them, to encourage them, to direct, to direct it in a new way. You see, in the pursuing the greatness, the world embraces authority. And because of Jesus has a command for his disciples, look at verse 26. I love this. Verse 26, just the first few words. But you are not to be like that. But you are not to be like that. Which leads me to think about, well, then what should we be like? What, what should we be like? I'll tell you. The world embraces authority. Who should you be like then? You should be like Christ. What does Christ do? What does he embrace? He embraces humility. Look at the rest of verse 26. It tells him you should not be like that. Instead, here's the instruction, guys. Here's what I want to tell you in your debate. The greatest, because that's what you're focused on, among you, that's who you're talking about, should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. He's beginning to define it for them. If anyone could have embraced authority, it was Christ Jesus himself. Amen? He had every right to embrace authority for who he was. To receive all the praise given to him. 
But instead, Christ embraces humility. Christ embraces humility. Humility. Humility is the way to greatness. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Yes. Very good, guys. Humility is so important. It's so important that you can't be the goat without it. You cannot even have a chance of becoming great or greatest of all time without humility. So processing this then for ourselves, how can I become the goat to those around me? Again, we're looking at this from what Jesus is saying here, not by what the world would say about being great. So we need to keep that context in mind when I ask, how can I, how can you become the goat, the greatest of all time, not just whatever, but to those around you, those that are right here around you. Let me give you two directives given by Jesus. First, replace your definition of greatness from the world to Christ. Replace your definition of greatness from the world to Christ. Again, look at verse 26. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. As I said, he doesn't rebuke their quest to be great. He directs and purifies their quest. How does he do this? Two ways. One way. First way is this. By assuming the place of least power, like the youngest, like Jesus had done. If you've got your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Let's go over there just for a moment in Luke chapter 9. Let me just show you what he's talking about here and why I put this as, a, as an example, as a way of assuming this place of least power like the youngest. Verse uh, 46 of Luke chapter 9, an argument started. What? Really? Among the disciples, oh, I wonder what this was about. Oh, as to which of them would be the what? The greatest. Oh, so this isn't something that's new. This has been going on for them, right? Oh, what does Jesus say then? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to his disciples, who were having this debate about who was great, he says this, whoever welcomes this little child, the youngest, in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he's the greatest. Again, replacing your definition of greatness from the world to Christ, how? By assuming the place of least power like the youngest. Here's a second way to do this. By assuming the place of least position, like a servant, by assuming the place of least position, like a servant. If you've got your Bibles still there, you should have the Gospel of John in your Bible, and you should turn there right now to John chapter 13. Let me just highlight this for a moment. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Again, how to become the goat to those around you. We're talking about replacing our greatness from the world to Christ. By assuming the place of least power like the youngest, now by assuming the place of least position like a servant. By the way, this happens in the upper room. John records it this way, verse 12, when he, Jesus, had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now what I... 
or that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Look, I have set an example for you so that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, and no, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you have seen or know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In other words, how do you become great, guys? By assuming the place of least position, like a servant. To replace your definition of greatness from the world to Christ, as I thought about this, it begins in the mind. Romans 12.1 talks about renewing our mind, instructs us uh, to do that. And that's why, I, for me, I find I've got to be in God's word every day. I appreciate Matt writing for us the personal time with God that's found in your bulletin. I love it getting in an email form because then I can just get it on my phone. I don't even have to get out of bed. I love it. I can just read it right there, tap on the verses I need to read, and I just go through it. That's the renewing of our mind to help us replace my definition of greatness from the worlds that I'm so surrounded by and influenced by to Christ and what's done through his word. Assuming the place of least power than youngest and assuming the place of least position like a servant, that's challenging. That's countercultural. It's counter to our flesh. It's counter to our old nature. You know, for me, if you were to have a conversation with me, you were sitting, you know, a cup of coffee or whatever it is, and you said, Bill, I have a question for you. Can I ask you a question? I said, sure. What's your question? You go, and, they, and you said, what's your greatest temptation? Wow, we're going to get a little bit personal. Can I take another sip and <laughs> set that down and sit back for a second? I'm now a little uncomfortable. He's like, well, I just want to know, what's your greatest temptation? What's the sin that comes along that's really tempting to you most of, among all sins? And as I sat there and I thought about how I would answer that question, I could give you various examples of sins that are tempting to me. There's one common theme that goes through all of them, and it comes down to this. I'm my greatest temptation. It's me, because I want to be God. I want to be able to the one who tells you what's good and what's not, what's right and what's not, who takes control of everything and maybe at times other people. I want to be that. That's my greatest temptation is to exalt myself, is to be about me. And guess why I like to use it or how I like to use it? I don't really want that Jesus stuff. I kind of like the world's accolades that they give me and the power and the prestige and that status. That's my greatest temptation. What's it for you? If you were to stop and we were not to say, well, how about it for you? You asked me the question, how about you? What's your greatest temptation? What's the most challenging thing to help you that you find that, that to, to counter whatever that temptation is that you struggle with in, in, in defining greatness and changing it from the world and being like Christ? How do you deal with assuming that place of least power like the youngest or that place of least position like the servant? How do you go about that? That's something we need to process through. So how can I become the goat to those around me, blessing them in humility and serving them? Another way, remember the example of Christ. Remember the example of Christ. Look what he says back now in Luke 23, or I'm sorry, Luke 22. Luke 22. Look here at verse, uh, verse 27. Jesus is continuing on with their discussion. Remember their, what the debate is about, right? Verse 27, for who is greater? Okay, we're talking about greatness. The one who is at the table 
or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Yeah. But, but what? But I am among you as the one who's doing what? As serving. The example of Christ. Remember the example of Christ. What did Jesus do for his disciples? What did Jesus do for you and me and every other person on this planet? There's two acts of humility. The first act of humility is that Jesus vacated his place of power. He vacated his place of power. Matt read from Philippians, Philippians 2, uh, verse 6. Here, look up on the screen. It says this. Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In humility, he let go of that. He vacated that in his place of power. And what's interesting to me is if you go over to Matthew 17, we're not going to do that right now, but if you go over to Matthew 17, and that's the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John get to go up and be with Jesus in this Mount of Transfiguration. It's a pretty amazing event that happens. And in this event, this moment, for a brief moment, because Peter messes it up, uh, they get an actual picture of who Jesus really is in all his power, in all his glory, in all his majesty. For a moment, they get to see like, oh, this is who it really is. They look and they get to understand and get that uh, snapshot, if you will, to see in this brief moment that Jesus truly is the greatest. In fact, they begin to realize that what unfolds here is Moses shows up. Who's Moses? He's the goat of the law. He's the greatest of all time when it comes to the law. The other guy who shows up is Elijah. He's the goat of the prophets. So it bestowed upon them growing up in Sunday school going, oh, Moses, he's the goat. Elijah, he's the goat. And then here's Jesus, and they're like, hey, it's Moses and Elijah, and they want to make a tent for him. And it's like, are you kidding me? The one who is truly great is Christ and Christ alone. We're here to bow and worship him. We can so easily miss this and not get this. And here is Jesus saying, I'm vacating my power in humility. It is an example to you to serve you. And like the youngest, Jesus has humbled himself and vacated his place of power. When we go to this table, remember that. Second act of humility is Jesus vacated his place of position. Jesus vacated his place of position. These are the examples that Christ sets for us in his humility. Philippians 2, 7, the next verse in the passage says this, but he, Jesus, emptied himself, taking the form of a bond's servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being made in the likeness of men. Throughout his earthly ministry, the disciples, Jesus Uh, saw Jesus serving others constantly. It was a common theme. The story was played over and over and over again. Serving those in his culture, the rest looked down on. Serving those in his culture, the rest rejected. In humility, they saw him serve them at this meal, as verse 27 has brought to us today in this story. Like a servant, Jesus has humbled himself and vacated his place of position and we need to remember that when we go to the table today. And so at the conclusion of this story, back in Luke, 
Jesus takes a moment to recognize how the disciples have served him. Remember, they're having this debate about who, who is great. Notice what he says in verse, uh, verse 28. You disciples are those who have stood by me in my trials. In all their focus and all their debate, that's just basically a Gentile way of looking at greatness. He says, hey, I just want to recognize, I just want to say to you guys, in effect, thanks for standing by me these past three years. In the midst of my trials, you've been there. You've been with me. And you might be kind of thinking, well, does this matter? What, what's the significance of this, Jesus? What are you saying here? How, how, how much did this mean to Jesus? He's saying this. How much does it mean to him? Look at verse 29 and 30. This is how much it means to him. It says, And I confer on you, all 12 of you guys. Well, there's going to be 11, and Matthias will replace Judas. But I confer on you a kingdom. Really? Just as my father conferred one on me. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You want to talk about a great opportunity <laughs> because of their faithfulness to be with him through his trials. Here's what Jesus is conveying to them. Despite their failures, despite their lack of faith, despite them blowing it over and over and over again, despite their misunderstanding of what it takes to be the goat, they had a reason to rejoice. So let me head towards home with this question. Like the disciples, what if I fail to become the goat? What if I fail to be the greatest of all time to those around me? And again, we're defining that as in service, as in humility, not in status as the world would say. Well, let me put it to you this way. As I shared earlier, many believe that Tom Brady is the greatest of all time when it comes to quarterbacks. But I just want to say for the record, he's won five Super Bowls, but he's lost three. Most recently, the most recent Super Bowl, he lost. He also lost the Super Bowl after going through an entire perfect season where they were undefeated. And you think, man, they're going to win. They're going to be like the 72 Dolphins. They're actually going to win. And then they lose. So even the greatest of all time, as we look at and discuss it in the NFL world, he's failed Big time, on the biggest stage. And my thinking is, we might fail too and think, how could I ever think about being the greatest of all time to those around me? How could I even do that? How, how is that even possible? Well, we've given you some ways about going to do that, but what if I fail? I like the disciples came to understand in their relationship with Jesus. Let me just encourage you with two thoughts. One is this, rejoice. Because you have a great advocate in Christ. You have a great advocate in Christ who doesn't give up on you. Look at what the promise is in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, or in, in some translations, but if any of you does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Like the disciples, 
We're told about their future. I want to encourage you to rejoice about yours. Rejoice. You have a great future with Christ. Look at the promise God gives you in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we die with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Let me wrap it up this way. In my college days, uh, my aunt and uncle were the sponsors of our college group, and they came up with this idea that we needed to serve others. And my aunt discovered that there was this convalescent home nearby where we as a college group could go put on a service. And I remember, honestly, just being transparent, taking the last breath of fresh air before we opened the door and went inside and put on the church service for an hour. And I remember my aunt saying to me, honey, I just want you to know you're going to get jewels in your crown for doing this. And I was kind of like, oh, man, that's really getting, me, getting to me, jewels in my crown. She used to say that to me all the time. And I remember one day I just said, you know, I'm tired of hearing that. And I told her, you know, all I want for my crown is a baseball cap. I'm good. I don't need all the crowns and stuff. And I told that story to a number of people through the years. And then somebody kind of kicked me in the gut one day. He says, hey, Bill, you know, you may just want a baseball cap. But Revelation 4, 9, and 10 speaks of tossing that cap with all the jewels that you got for serving at Will Lake Convalescent Home at the feet of Jesus. Oh. Oh. Being a servant has something great that I can do to bless others. But you know what it's really great for? It's great to offer that to Jesus when one day you're standing before him. And whether or not you became the greatest of all time, whatever. You go, Jesus, I did this for you. I put this at your feet because you are the greatest of all time and will always be the greatest of all time. And it's because of that I worship you for all time.